Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, June the 12th. We continue looking at our study in the book of Job. Uh, This week, trying to get um, from chapters uh, 13 through about 21, or or, excuse me, 13 through, um, I don't know, 16 or so. In our last study, we left Job... um, like a like a person in prison planning his case for his appearance before God and anyone who's have has anything to do with prisoners or, or knows that you soon can develop prison attorneys men women waiting for trial who who scour the prison libraries studying law books to get their case all together and sometimes they become such experts in the law that they actually assume the presentation of their own case uh, before the jury So Job is like that, and and in chapter 13, he describes how through the long hours of of anguish, he's planning what he would say if God ever gave him a chance. And and we'll open up by looking at the case that he's prepared before God, and he's divided into basically four major points that he wants to make. And the first one is a plea for certain conditions that he feels he needs before he's able to stand and talk to God. So verses 19 through 21 of chapter 13 of Job, who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. C.S. Lewis has said that to argue with God is to argue with the very power that makes it possible to argue at all. And Job sort of senses that. He knows that he must have mercy from God before he can even stand before him. So he asks that two conditions be granted to him. One, that God will lift the pain and the anguish that he's going through so that he does not have to speak out of his constant torment of his body. And secondly, that God would veil his presence that Job uh, wouldn't be scared to death and terrified by the awesomeness of of a mighty God. It's this vivid description of the sense that of God that that man has, even in his hour of anguish. And one thing we never find Job doing is forgetting his consciousness of the character of God, even though he wonders what God is doing and he feels he's being mistreated in many ways, he always has a sense of the majesty of God. And here he asks that he's delivered from that fear so that he might present his case. And the next division is Job's cry for knowledge. You see, he needs some information before he can go on. And then in verse 23, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. It is universally recognized in any court of law that a prisoner has the right to know what the charges are against them. This is Job's dilemma. He does not really know what is the trouble. Although he's searched his heart, his theology, along with that of his friends, tells him that punishment and suffering come because of sin. But what sin? That's what he can't answer. And so he cries out, what have I done? How have I offended you, God? This is the one instinctive cry of a suffering heart. What have I done? Why is this happening to me? And Job expresses that beautifully, and and he protests the silence of God and his apparent anger against him. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet." 
the only thing that occurs to Job that may be the answer to this unending pain is that God is going back and picking up the sins of his past, maybe even the sins of his youth, despite the fact that he offered sacrifices to be delivered of those sins according to God's program. And then in chapter 14, these beautifully expressed moving passages, Job Job (laughs) brings out the hopelessness and the hopelessness of man before God. He is helpless to control his affairs. And he says, man who is born of woman is a few, is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And yet God brings this limited, helpless man who is a victim of circumstances and judges him for things that he can't help. That, this is Job's feeling. In verses 5 through 6, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy at least like a hired hand his day. What can man do? He is a victim of what happens to him. This is the expression of Job's heart and many have felt have felt this way. I can't help that I was born into this situation, to these pressures, these circumstances. What can I do? This is the the basis of Job's plea. And then in the last part in verses 7 through 12, express uh, express every man's sense of hopelessness. There's no way to go back and do it over again. Who who of us has not said, oh, I wish I could go go back and do that again, or at least some aspect of it. If I could go back knowing what I know now, I, I think I can make make things a little better. I could clear up so many of the mistakes I made. Give me another chance, God. Now that I've learned what I need to know, that's a universal feeling. And Job feels that, but he expresses his consciousness that, that this is impossible. And, and he says, for there's, there's hope for a tree. If it is cut down, that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. But if a man dies and is, and is laid low, man breathes his last. And where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away, wastes away and dries up. So a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. That's Job's pessimistic view of life. I think here we, we're dealing with a great problem that we all face. We have a distorted view of this present life which Job expresses. He goes on in, in, in the next passage, verse 13 to 7, to cry out for kind of a purgatory afterlife. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. Vividly describes a joy it would be to stand before God with God's wrath already passed. Now, Job is not describing this because he thinks it is possible for him. He's trying to voice those inarticulate longings of the human heart to be freed from guilt. Guilt that we do not always feel we can help. And somehow having some kind of a condition that would set us free. And this is what has given rise to the hope among among uh, humanity for purgatory after death, where we can pay somehow for some of our sins, but the rest of them are set aside so that at least we can stand before God accepted of him. And then chapter 14 closes with this description of, of the hopelessness of man. But then nevertheless, in verses 18 through 22, but the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear 
away the stones, the torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. So this vivid, uh, beautiful expression of, of what is wrong with our view of life. Job is looking at life as a natural man. And he sees it as the world sees it, that everything is, is for now. This life is the, the only and, and wholly important thing. And the reason that we were brought into existence is to make something out of this present experience. We, we never get another chance. We are constantly told by the, by the world with, with its distorted understanding of life to seize the present moment. You're, you're never going to get another one. If you don't make it now, it'll, it'll be too late. And people began to feel the force of this argument and they believe it and they think that the only thing left if there's to be any pleasure and enjoyment in life is just to seize the present moment and now that's a faulty view of life and that's what god is teaching job in this book this is not what it's all about this is not why human existence is given it this is but this is just school time this is a time of preparation to get ready for the real life that lies ahead and compare Job's view of life with the revelation of the New Testament and the view of New Testament writers as to what lies beyond death, and we see very vivid contrasts. They look forward to something beautiful, grand, glorious, breaking in, that they can hardly wait to get there. But here we get only the idea that everything has to be done now. And I think that's why we get upset with ourselves and with life at times. I, I think I feel that, that it's been put together sort of backwards. We have to make all the major decisions right, right at the time we, we know really nothing. So round one is complete. They've all had a chance at Job. And his friends, you know, sort of hike up their, their loins, sharpen their spears, and, and they come at, it, come at him again. And in verse six, the first six verses, Eliphaz the, um, uh, has has charges Job with with some harsh words here in Job fifteen. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in the words which he can do no good? But you're going away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your, your own lips testify against you. Eliphaz starts out you know, cautious. He's courteous. But now he's, he's sort of dropped the, the courtesy, and he charges Job with, with really you know, these pretentious claims. Are you the first man who was born, or, or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God, and do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that's not clear to us? Basically, we have the same sources of knowledge as you do, Job. Why, why do you put us down and think that you're so smart? And then he returned, as all the friends do, to, to the narrow theology uh, picking up in verse 14, what is man that he can be pure or, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. 
of course, Eliphaz has Job in mind here, and, and I hope we have seen the, the fault in, in, the line, in this line of argument. It is not that their theology is wrong. It is, it is right. Eliphaz is pointing out the general nature of the depravity of man, the fall, its effects on human life. And he says rightly that there is nobody who's clean, nobody who's righteous before God. But what Eliphaz fails to do is to point out to Job specifically what what he has done. How can we deal with evil if we do not know what it is? And the great revelation that God is seeking to help Job to understand is the nature of the corruptness of his heart. But God never charges him with this fault until Job begins to see what is wrong. While these men come ready to charge him with all, you know, with every ugly thing in the book— although they didn't have any proof and Job's life gives the lie to all their charges. As a matter of fact, they themselves are guilty of the very things that they, that they are, are accusing Job of because they're, they too are part of the human race. A life as is a man born of a woman. So he's guilty with Job under, under this, but we never hear a word of self condemnation from him. This is, this is the fault of these friends. <clears throat> and I hope that it teaches me and you uh, a very needed lesson. When we go to talk with somebody <clears throat> who is in trouble or in pain or suffering or even sinful, I mean, obviously so, we must never take the position of rightness, of smugness, or, or a complacency that pictures us being right and true and that the other one is wrong. A life as goes on in this long passage to argue again from experience. He goes back over all the past and says, hey, my my thesis is true. Everything proves it. God will not let a man get by with wickedness. The, the wicked are going to be punished. So if you're being punished, then you got to be wicked. He basically he says in verse 34, for the company of the godless is barren and the fire consumes the tents of bribery. They can they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their womb prepares deceit. It's the same tired uh, thrust at Job. He must be guilty of some terrible sin. And then in chapter 16 and 17, Job answers. He, he does not know what to say, but he's, he's trying to be honest. And the great thing about Job is that he's not a hypocrite. He never tries to cover, cover up or, or set his case in a better light. He simply just blurts out all the hurt. All the, all the anguish of his heart, the best that he can. And, and he also rebukes these men for not, not understanding, you know, for, for their misunderstanding. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, Job answered and said, I've heard many things, such things, miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or, or what provokes you to that answer? Also, I also could speak to you as, as if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and, and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. So sarcastic words coming from a man who is tortured. And we can see from this that Satan, though he is faded from the scene, is still there in the background using these friends as channels for what Paul calls the fiery darts of the wicked one, the accusations of the accuser against the brethren. So let us be aware. So we become a channel for Satan's accusations against someone who's suffering as Job is suffering here. Then Job goes on to state the facts as he understands them. He First of all, he says, hey, all I can conclude from what I am suffering is that God must hate me. Um, 
Job goes on to show how even the people around him have rejected him and how God is behind that in verses 10 through 13. And, and here Job charges God with all that is wrong in his life. But God is wonderfully patient. He does not reply against Job. He does not strike him down in anger. Job is certainly not the highest example of, of faith in scriptures, but Job is the example for us of how nat- how our natural view of life must be broken through so that we begin to see things in a different light. The book is, is here to teach us that God sometimes has to translate theology into painful experience before we really begin to grasp what he's trying to say to us. And Job ends by protesting his innocence again in verse 16 through 17. My face is red with weeping and all my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. Then once again, as we've already seen, breaking through into Job's consciousness, this dim reflection of what God is trying to show him. O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. So despite the charge that Job makes against God, that, that, that this is all coming from him, faith breaks through at this point to say that God must also supply the answer. God alone can explain what is happening to him. And Job's faith lays hold of that amazing fact. And the, and the truth is gradually breaking in on Job that God himself can answer these searching questions of his heart. And then in chapter 17, we find Job's prayer that God will set him free. He prays for relief largely from his friends. He's had enough of them. And, and he expresses his need for defense in verses three through, six, three through six. He expresses the effects of his suffering on, on others, especially these men. And, and he challenges them in verse 10. But, but you, come on again, all of you, and, and I shall not find a wise man among you. He, he's heard all their arguments. And he knows that they do not help. So in the final part of the chapter, he sinks back again into the, the darkness of despair. My days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart. And then in chapter 18, we have, we have Bildad, Bildad the Brutal's defensive uh, posture. And it, it reflects the same line of argument as before. Bildad is, is logical. He's coldly analytical, coldly intellectual. Uh, Bildad the Brutal, he, he, and he's angry, and he's upset that Job does not answer him quickly and that Job has accused him of being unkind in his approach. So he gets angry, and he says, and he says how long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. What, why are we counted as cattle? Why are, why are we stupid in your sight? And he goes on from verse 5 to the end of the chapter to, to go forth again in the narrow, rigid dogma of his theology. Of his theology. If we're suffering... It must be because we've sinned. And then in chapter 19 gives the plea of Job. First, he describes his feelings about his friends and how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with your words? These 10 times you have cast uh, a reproach on me. They, are, are you not ashamed to wrong me? And then verses 7 through 12, he describes the bafflement at which he's which is what's happening to him. And then 13 through 20, we have this description of the isolation that he feels. Um, surely nothing is harder to bear than the rejection by all who should understand. Job is feeling the terrible pain of this, and, and as well as the physical pain. But in the midst of the darkness, when, when it's blackest and gloomiest, one of the most amazing rays of light breaks through again in verse 23. 
then all, then all of a sudden, this ray of hope, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes still behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. It's one of the great words of faith in the Old Testament. One of the earliest hints of the resurrection of the body that we find in the Word of God. Slowly, through the anguish and the gloom of Job's heart, born out of the passion that he feels, comes this realization that God is working out a great and mighty purpose. That, and that one of these days, God himself, whom Job has never failed to see, is a God of great majesty and power. He's never failed to see that, will be visibly present before men. And God will come himself and will vindicate all that he does. And this is a marvelous glance ahead by faith to the incarnation of the Lord. Job calls him my redeemer, my vindicator, the one who is related to me, who nevertheless will defend me and vindicate all that has happened to me. I think there's nothing in that the study of this book of Job does for us more than to understand that life is is really a mystery. It's basically a mystery. We are surrounded with mystery. We can't comprehend it all. It's it's painted on too large of a canvas. It's too great and it's involved and it's too involved for us to grasp it all. The ways of God are beyond us um, many times, all the time. And yet Job is gradually learning that in the midst of his pain, to trust the God who is there, to trust that he will come up with answers and that he is working out a purpose in line with his love. That is what life gradually teaches us. That is what Job is gradually learning. God is working out a purpose. It's not related to specific sin. Although, as we'll see before the book's over, Job learns much more about the depravity of his own nature. But right now he, he ends by warning his friends to be careful about judging him. In verse 28, he says, if you say how we will pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. And that's the message of Job to us. Some of us may be going through pain, suffering, and, and let me be clear, we, we keep using this word suffering, and, and, and we, have to, we have to understand that that's relative. Um, you know, we don't suffer as others suffer, but we do, but maybe we suffer more than another, or, or so it would seem. So that's a, that's a relative term. But some of us may be going through pain, suffering, disappointment, and we're crying out as Job, as Job did, why? What have I done? Where does this all fit together? And Job's answer to us, as, as all of Scripture's answer is really, is God knows what he is about. And one of these days, all of the answers will come. Uh, but in the meantime, we can rest in the confidence that he is God and that he knows what he's doing. Amen. And God bless.